I'm Vicki Lawson. And I'm Sarah Elwood. We're the co-directors of the Relational Poverty Network, which is a collaboration among over 500 scholar activists and educators working on questions of impoverishment in the broadest sense. The network convenes conversations amongst people working in very different places around the globe in order to trouble taken for granted ideas about who is poor and why. And this podcast, titled New Poverty Politics for Changing Times, brings you a series of conversations between poverty scholars, activists, and educators. They think about how to keep questions of poverty and inequality front and center at a time when poverty is not part of the national conversation nearly enough. A foundational premise of the work is that poverty is always produced in relation to privilege and produced through multiple intersecting injustices. It's our hope that these conversations prompt you to think hard about questions of impoverishment and to collaborate with people who are working hard on these issues. Thanks for listening. Okay, buenos dias. Good morning. Hi, I'm Tony Lucero. I'm an associate professor here at the University of Washington and a member of the Relational Poverty Network. And it's my great pleasure to have a chance to chat with Dr. Yolanda Valencia, who is an assistant professor of geography and environmental systems at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. And I had the good fortune of working with Yolanda when she was a PhD student here at the University of Washington. So Yolanda, it's really nice to, to chat with you today. Thank you, Tony. Thank you for um, giving me the opportunity to be interviewed by you for this amazing uh, network uh, in the Relational Poverty Network. It is a great pleasure to be here. Well, it's a, it's a great pleasure for me, too, and I, and I couldn't agree more about how wonderful the Relational Poverty Network is for um, this intergenerational conversation of, of scholars at, the, at different points in, in our career, just to have a chance to talk about things that are really important. And uh, a note to our listeners, uh, we've agreed that, you know, because you and I are trans-border kind of people, we'll be moving between Spanish and English and maybe even Spanglish as the conversation goes. So mm -hmm. sometimes we'll be a, a little I bit think. more más fronterizos than, than other times, okay? Um, entonces, so just to start off a little bit, I think your work is so interesting, but I don't think we can really understand the terrific work you're doing without understanding where you're positioned um, and a little bit about your history. Um, so I'm wondering if you can just start by giving us a little bit of a biography about how, how you came to the U.S. and how your experience of, of migration affects the subject that we're going to be talking today. It was really thinking about how harm and healing can occur in these trans-border ways. So could you, could you start a little bit biographically? Thank you so much. Yes, of course. Um, Thank you. So I was born and raised in Mexico, and I lived there until I was 17 years old. And ever since I remember, my dad migrated into the U.S. as an undocumented worker himself. Um, and so he always promised that it was going to be the last trip. He will stay in the U.S. for about two years, and then he will go back. And then a few months later, he will start making plans again to come back. That was always a great struggle, especially between him and my dad, because I mean, him and my mom, I'm sorry, um, because my mom will always question why he had to come. And then my dad will have to remind her that, you know, the job, there was no stable jobs 
in our community. Um, so I was basically raised in a very small community and uh, most people rely on uh, growing corn and other agrarian products to survive, I mean, to consume and sell. And as the years went passing on, we noticed how the price of corn was decreasing in relation to everything else, to the cost of gas and the living cost of living was, was going higher every time. So as consequence, basically my, five, my four siblings and I uh, we're raised mainly by a single mom and she will be doing laundry for the poor and then um, also selling food in the streets and in the markets. And so my, my, my siblings and I will help from a very young age. And then uh, when I was about 17 years old, uh, my dad was able to uh, get documents for one of my sisters and I, and eventually for my one of my brothers. And what happened is that in the mid 1980s, my dad was able to, through the IRCA, through the Immigration Reform and Control Act, my dad was able to uh, get documents and then he applied for us. But by the time that the application was processed and everything else, about 10 years passed by, so it wasn't until mid-1990s that um, my sister, my mom, and I were able to migrate into the U.S. Um, yeah, it is a very uh, funny and, and interesting story because when we were, uh, when we migrated, the plan was not really to migrate yet. Mm -hmm. uh, we received a letter from the consulate for the uh, interview in El Paso, Texas, and we were living in a very small place in Michoacan. And so we came only for the interview. We only had about two sets of clothes and the plan was to come to the interview. And if we were given documents and go back to our community and then you know arrange everything so that we could eventually come to the US. However, when we came to the interview, we noticed that it was not an easy thing to actually mm -hmm. be approved for documents. Mm -hmm. There was these big lines waiting. We were told to go very early in the morning to the consulate in, in Ciudad Juarez and, and wait because the line was going to get really long. And, and indeed, that was the case. We came in around October, and so yes, around this time, it was very cold, and we got up very early at around 4 a.m. to be there in line by 5 a.m. or so, and there was already people, there were people already waiting in line. And so when, it, it, and the interview lasted about two days, the process is very long. We also had like a medical, um, check up and it was very invasive by the way mm -hmm. and so by the by the time that we were approved uh, you know after we received tricky questions as if oh we have information that they told me that you actually went to the U.S. at one point and I say no I didn't so I mean they try to trick you in so mm -hmm. many ways but again it is to to see whether you know they can deny you the permit or, or, or this residency status. So when they gave us this, the, the, when they approve our documents, um, I remember my mom telling my dad, well, we are so close. I want to go and test them now. I want to see if these documents are even real. And so then she just, she just wanted to come and see the U.S. because it was such a mysterious place where my dad used to come too often 
So we, the plan was to come for a few months and then here we are. I have been here for more than half of my life already. Wow. And yeah, so that's, that's how we came. And yes, that's, wow. that's basically my background and how immigration has been my, I've been in intimate relation with immigration even before migrating myself. Yeah, no, and that's so fascinating. And it, it intersects a little bit with my own my own background. I, I grew up in El Paso, Ciudad Juarez. So, you know, the place where you where you come is also a place I know really well. And and although my family situation is different, my um, my grandfather was actually from New Mexico. He was a minor and he he migrated back to Chihuahua to live with family after he had an accident in the mine. But because he had a US he was a US citizen, my father who grew up in Chihuahua also had a U.S. citizenship, um, so we we were able to cross. But despite that legal status, every time we crossed, because we we lived on both sides, both we lived in Ciudad Juarez till I was about six, and then we moved to El Paso. But we were always crossing. Everyone in El Paso and Ciudad Juarez is always crossing. But I just remember every time we crossed the border, and you talk to the border guard or the border agent, oh, we all tensed up. We all just you know understood that. We had to say the right thing, and this was not a time to play around. So I can only imagine how much more tense it is what it was for you, and how, and how tense it is for people today, given the political climate. So it is a the border emotionally is always a very charged place. Definitely, yes. I remember we um, we took a taxi. We first took a bus to take us very close to the border, and we stopped in a in a bus station, and then we took a taxi to cross to help us cross the border. And when the taxi was crossing, the, the security guys, the border patrol, told the, the, the driver, are you bringing like pollos? Basically, mm -hmm. he was asking right. if he was bringing undocumented people. So, and, and he responded in both in English and Spanish, saying, no, they actually have documents. Right. No? So yes, it, it was a very tense moment to cross. Um, Fortunately, I never experienced crossing without documents as my dad did and many right. more people have done and continue to do so. Yeah. how you think about your research. So maybe you can just tell us about about that your research agenda. What how would you describe the overarching research question that you that you asked and and what led you to want to 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 do what you do right now? Thank you. Yes, of course. So as I say, thankfully and, and luckily I didn't experience migrating without documents, but that has always been one of my my curiosities to understand how people experience different spaces across this migration journey or across moving across the space, right? And so uh, for my master's thesis, I interviewed 10 Mexican women who migrated without documents. And again, my, my goal was to understand how they experience these different spaces and how even their own identities change as they move through space. And um, something that was very shocking for me was to hear a few of them, and especially, I mean, most of them, but especially a few of them, um, 
referring to the U.S. as a place that provides security once they told me the migration journey. And again, I did this a few years ago, and it was when when the war on drugs was more, um, what is it, um, it was more prominent. Yeah. It is still right yeah. now, but at yes. one point, uh, right after the declaration of the war on drugs, a yes. lot of communities in Mexico, including my own community, got affected, and that was another reason why I wanted to understand this violence, yeah. displacement, and so um, many of my participants were directly or indirectly affected by the war on drugs, and then crossing without documents, going through all this trauma, and then coming into the U.S., I understood how these experiences are relational mm-hmm. and contextual to live experiences across this space mm-hmm. that we have made uh, for for people or this, the nation state has made so that some people are meant to survive and others not. So that was one of my, my uh, research and my most recent one. Um, move the the research question kept moving as I was going on, and especially after the election of, of President Trump, um, my question moved from being at first I wanted to understand how people produce space um, and, and make make and produce space to then wanting to understand how people um, are able to to navigate violence in the U.S. How do they experience violence, but then how do they produce safe spaces? And so it became a combination of both. Um, when for my final project, why my main question became, how is it people that survive or even thrive in places that are not meant to be for their survival? Mm-hmm. And so um, I interview about. 40, over 40 um, immigrants, mostly undocumented. And also I interviewed some community leaders, including the mayor of Pasco, the chief of the police, uh, the president of the uh, Hispanic, um, uh, what is it, Camara de Comercio. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, um, one of my main findings was to realize and to understand that in fact, the recent, I mean, one of the ways in which people produce thriving communities is, is the relations of the everyday life. Right. Is these knowledges that they bring with them from the places that they come from as well. Mm-hmm. 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 Now that, I, I think that leads to the next uh, question I wanted to, to ask you about. Uh, you describe your approach is a, is a trans-border uh, and a transnational approach. And it, it, I think you just gestured to that with what you just said, but could you explain a little bit more about what, what you mean by that? Right, thank you so much. Um, so there are many layers into this transnationalism or transborder that I see in my work. One of the main things that I came to understand is that we cannot really talk about immigration in the U.S without understanding why people have to migrate to begin with. That's one layer, because it is always in conversation. And as I said before, understanding that the way in which people frame their lives in places of arrival, in my case in the U.S., is influenced by the experiences that they had across this space, across borders. 
And another another point is that this relation across the space continues mm -hmm. even after people migrate into the US. Mm -hmm. They are in touch, especially with technology now, um, into what is going on and with the news and, and, and yes, and ways of communication to understand what are what is the situation back at home. Because mm -hmm. most of the people that I know, their plan was to be here only for one year. Right. Just as we, our plan was to be here only for a few months, our plan, their plan is to be here for, a, for one year, but then that time just keeps extending right. as the situation is not even improving in the places back at home. And so this is why I couldn't drop my place of origin in my own research because it is in relation, it's always in relation mm -hmm. in, in, in conversation, how people organize their lives in the U.S. is in many ways influenced by what is going on in places of origin when it comes to immigrants, especially for my community. Right. No, and I think that's such an important point to remind people about that so many migrants don't make that journey with the idea of, of moving forever, right? That this is the, 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 the decision to leave your home is not a is not an easy one, and in fact, the many migrants find themselves find themselves like you just described, uh, staying much longer than they ever anticipated because of the way that the the migration process makes it very difficult and costly for them to to return and to kind of do the the cyclical kind of migration patterns that have been so familiar in in the Americas for such a long time, right? Correct. Yes, and I remember those times when I lived in this little community when I was young and I noticed that, you know, my cousins, my friends, more community members will come to the U.S. and then go back every year. Uh, they will come and work and go back, but it got to a point where they are no longer going back. And as you mentioned, it is a situation in our communities, but also the increased bordering, the increased policy, policing in the border that has make it, made it costly and way more risky for people to cross. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, you know, just parenthetically, I, we're, we're, we're talking in the, in the first week of November and uh, the Dia de los Muertos has just passed. And, you know, I, we, we both have kids and my, uh, my mom just sent me a video for, for her nieto, for Mari, or for San Antonio, about the, the, the monarch butterflies. You, you must know the story very well because they come back to Michoacan every year and they, they come back around the Day of the Dead. And so the communities in Michoacan now have assimilated that, that migration of, of the butterflies into just the, the, the ritual of, of everyday life. So migration in some ways is, is, you know, something that occurs all the time. But at the same time, you know, there are all these kind of other social processes that make it often dangerous and often very, um, very costly. Correct, yes. Um, so one other thing about just uh, to return to the transnational and transborder terminology, I take it that the move towards thinking about transborder is also a reminder that we, we should not always fixate or focus on the nation state, right? That, that borders are a little bit more complicated than that. Is, that. is that how you think about it too? In a way, part of me does. However, I, I, I definitely agree, um, and there are some um, very amazing scholars who have written about about this idea of, of not embracing the, these national borders that make it transnational. However, for me and in my work, um, 
I cannot just get rid of the national borders yeah. because this border between Mexico and the U.S. and more increasingly so, even the south border of Mexico between Mexico and Guatemala and many more borders have become such a spaces of violence. Yes. And, and, yeah. and the idea of nationality is one justification to actually paint these borders. But not only that, it's, it's also a, a space, it is a piece of land that has become a place of death for yeah. so many people as yeah. they cross it. And, and a place where, you know, it, the, the, this discourse of the nation is such a powerful one to 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 justify the, the increasing police policing of it and, and detaining the movement of the precisely the people that is being displaced due to policies that are also in national and international policies. So cross I cannot just ignore the this national border in my work because again it makes it it really affects the everyday life of the people mm -hmm. in both sides, in my case, of both sides of the border, Mexico and the US, because it separates people. It is a boundary, it is a tangible boundary yeah. that that also mm, transform transform the, the, the mere identity of people from being a citizen, from you know being from a place to becoming the so-called illegal alien on the other side. Yes. No, I think that's a terrific point that, you know, we, there are so many, there's so many processes of bordering that happen everywhere, but they're not all the same. That some, some bordering practices are much more violent and much more militarized and much more uh, dangerous in creating just the, the zones of death that, that, you, that you just mentioned. So I think that, I think that makes a really good point. And you know, it also it reminds us that we also have this this large line that we're dividing between the global north and the global south. And in your work, you you describe the importance of adapting knowledge from from the south as a form of resistance. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. So um, in my work, I look into uh, precisely when I when I was looking into how people produce meaningful lives, how do they thrive? And as an ethnographer, I get to participate, to be there, to observe, to experience, um, and understand that when people migrate, in this case from Mexico to the US, it's not that they leave their knowledge behind. And um, I know probably Escobar or Mignolo or both have written about border thinking, and that is what comes to my mind too, is the fact that people, in this case, who migrate uh, from agrarian communities in my study, um, bring practices and knowledge of organizing and surviving, and they adapt and readapt them to overcome more barriers or different barriers in the U.S. Because as I mentioned before, my community comes from an, an agrarian place and I have also been in indigenous communities in Mexico and Oaxaca. And that has helped me see some similarities in the way in which uh, people organize and continue to do so. Um, in my community, we have led to believe or 
ourselves as no longer indigenous, mm -hmm. but as mestitos. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, while we have lost so much of our own history, because the way in which the, the public schools teach history in Mexico is, is, is a very colonizing one. Mm -hmm. um, they, I went there to school and I learned about uh, the Christopher Columbus Discover Us, we had a parade on his name. Mm -hmm. um, I learned that our indigenous ancestors are gone, that right. most of them die, that our knowledges were not knowledges, but were myths, and that we had different gods that, you know, they were based mythological gods, gods and that mm -hmm. our languages were not language, but, also, but actually that they were... Um, dialects mm -hmm. and so there are so many ways in which again our history even with it on own places is told in a way that is to fulfill another way of modernity mm -hmm. and so many of these agrarian communities are then seen as backward and the state doesn't really invest in them um, and on top of that, you know, they, they have priorities, but on top of that, there's these policies that are international that force these governments to, to um, decrease their cost in, in, in social welfare systems. They usually end up cutting costs into these whatever social services they might have provided for, for these agrarian communities. So the community has been, in a way, forced um, or they have to keep adapting ways of organizing that is by and for the community. There is this amazing scholar, his name is Jaime Martinez Luna. He's an indigenous Zapotec indigenous from Oaxaca. And um, the way in which he explains communality and communalicracia is very influential. And I was able to see then a lot of similarities into how not only indigenous communities, which by the way, there are many indigenous communities still in Mexico, mm -hmm. and especially in Oaxaca and in, um, in other uh, southern Chiapas, um, where they continue to organize and live in different ways. And I, and I say different, but I mean different than what the mainstream has led us to believe, but also so many ways in which they organize and have so many similarities into how um, uh, mestizo communities, mestizo mm -hmm. agrarian communities continue to organize. So what I see is the practices, yeah. the way in which people continue to be, uh, to organize the work, fiestas and the land continue to be by and for the community. And it is, this is something that that Martinez Luna highlights. And so then I, I see how this also applies when people migrate into the U.S., mm -hmm. uh, when people are forced to migrate into the U.S. and leave their lands behind. Right. So while the land, literally the land, is no longer really truly, they are not there to continue to work the land by and for the community, well, they have other ways to organize the space in the U.S. that becomes, in many ways, buying for the community. Yeah, no, that's yeah, that's terrific. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you've you've really anticipated kind of the direction I think I, I wanted us to go, which is really thinking about how indigenous, how thinking about indigeneity, how centering indigeneity um, really changes the discussion that we have about borders and migration. Because as you as you well know, often we have this public debate in the United States, especially that 
we're a nation of migrants, um, and that one of the effects of that kind of language is it, is it is it invisibilizes Native peoples who are still very much here, right? And it and it and it also invisibilizes the fact that many of the people who are migrating are themselves Native peoples. So, uh, could you just continue to just uh, say a little bit more about how thinking uh, what what what's the importance of thinking about indigeneity for for thinking about borders? Yeah, yeah, and that is something that has been in my mind for quite a bit. Um, I have amazing colleagues of mine, uh, such as Michelle Deglo, Maggie Ramirez, uh, who have been organizing um, some um, events or, or um, what is it? They have been organizing uh, talks mm-hmm. or uh, conversations in, in different spaces about the colonial geographies. And it is, it has been quite a challenge. And also thinking about the work by other indigenous scholars, such as Tak and Yang, who talk about the colonizing is not a metaphor. And and for me and, and my work, what I see, as I mentioned before, is this border that is very much a colonizing border, the physical border, the barrier that then justifies changing the status from one person to be a citizen or to be an indigenous person uh, into now becoming an immigrant, as you mentioned, and becoming even an illegal or an alien in this other side of the land. One thing that I have been asking them is then what if what if colonization didn't happen in this way? What if we really want to ignore these these colonizing nationalistic borders? Right. How will we then be relating with each other? What will what will the relationships look like? Will we be then seen also as settlers or not, will our, our identity also change that drastically? But again, it is a very challenging idea, um, but it is one that we should keep having, a conversation that we should keep having, because sadly, I have noticed to it within, even within my community, when I ask them, do you feel you have the right to be here mm-hmm. um, in the other side of the land or in this nation? And they will say, well, yes and no, because I am, this is not my land. This is the land of the white people. And I'm like, really? So this, this big um, uh, story that we have been told that is um, overpowering everything else is the idea that this land is, is a people for, you know, of, of, of gabachos, no? Mm-hmm. The, the land of the gringos. Mm-hmm. And, 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 as just as we have been colonized even with it on on our own place through education um, the, where we have been told we're, that we are no longer indigenous but mm-hmm. we are mestizos mm-hmm. and and by the way it's only between Spanish and, and, and indigenous even though at one point in Mexico there was more African people than Spanish. Mm. And yet, we even erase that portion. It's yeah. about highlighting our supposedly Spanish ancestry, right? Mm-hmm. And then we come into the U.S. where there is another uh, dominating story about mm-hmm. what is this land about. Mm-hmm. And so there is a lot of um, sort of even decolonizing this knowledge or decolonizing education that needs to happen for us to understand that we are indeed 
settlers and uninvited guests in this place. But I also wonder, what will the relationship be then if we really truly want to decolonize? Yeah. To decolonize so many levels that it's not only metaphorically, but even eventually the land. Yeah. No, I think you raise such important points because I think on, you know, as you say, borders themselves are, 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 are uh, a technology of settler colonialism, right? That they are used to dispossess and they're used for certain kinds of projects to eliminate native peoples. Um, but they work in, in, in all kinds of uh, complex ways. Uh, I, I, I really appreciate the, the, the contrast you're painting between the, the kind of racial formation in Mexico uh, where this there is this idea of, of la raza cosmica that you know todos somos indígenas we all have some bit of Indian blood but we're all mixed right so you know that there is something about that that you know very one could say an optimistic or a, a progressive reading of that is it's an anti-racist move to kind of you know combat white supremacy and to say that racial mixture is really great. But what that seems to miss uh, is that that language of mixture is also a language of homogenization. If you're not mixed in the right way, if you're too Indian, if you're too black, you're not properly Mexican, right? Right, so, yes. So that is one exclusionary kind of work that happens in south of the, uh, of, of the Rio Grande, Rio Bravo. And in the U.S., it's a different kind of racial formation, but where white supremacy is much more pronounced and much much sharper in its in its manifestations. But that work of eliminating and subordinating still still happens, and so that that navigation has to happen in really tricky ways for migrants, right? Um. Right, and it gets even more complicated when we think about the U.S. Southwest that was first colonized by the Spanish, and then colonized by by. Um, by England or by Europe that in a way that now the very people that has been colonized twice is also being framed as the aliens. Right, right. And, you know, we might even say colonized again by the Mexican state, right? So the, the layers of colonialism are very, they're very thick. But, you know, on the other hand, one of the things that I find your work that, that's so interesting about it is the, 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 the importance of, of what, what you call, and I think rightly, indigenous practices that, that you know, that even the assimilationist education that we all that we received that you described really well, they don't want us to use that term. But yet you find that there are, uh, there's an important sense of community, which you alluded to a second ago, um, that continues to be reproduced. And even if we don't call it an indigenous practice necessarily, you, you want to suggest that that's what it is. Is that right? That's right. That's correct. I think that there are many layers of practices that have been passed from generation to generation. And it's especially relevant in places of people who come from, from very small agrarian communities where they have been passing these practices um, because that's a way to survive also in Mexico, because as you mentioned, the Mexican state has also worked to, to then colonize or, or to, to only support certain way of being and knowing that is very much a Western one, and then to try to impose that way of modernity. And then, um, so the people that are forced to migrate oftentimes and always, 
end up having here and continue to adapt and readapt this knowledge that has been passed from generation to generation mm-hmm. where um, and I have so many examples within my work that yeah I was just going to ask if you could share what one concrete or a couple of concrete examples of what those practices that have been most interesting to you Right. One of them that I really appreciate and is the, is the idea of convivality, of convivencia um, through, through celebrations of life. Um, and so back in my community, whenever there was a wedding or, or especially a wedding or even a birthday party or something, um, almost no one really needed invitation. Uh, we will know that there was a wedding and just by going, we all were invited automatically to go to church and then go to the fiesta. And we were welcome as, as family because we knew each other. We we put each other in relation to, oh, it's the daughter of, of the so-and-so, so therefore we are related. So, oh, you're the daughter of, of, of my uncle who used to live here, or you were born here. Somehow we always try to find a way to relate to each other. Mm-hmm. And I have come to understand that this is actually an indigenous practice around the world mm-hmm. now that I've been reading more from indigenous scholars. Mm-hmm. And that is very fulfilling and highlighting. Mm-hmm. And so as, as, as a family member, as being somehow connected, not as traditional families as we know it, but it's in a more expansive way, then people are always welcome to these celebrations of life. Yes. Um, something else that I noticed, and it is another way of, of um, sort of dealing with, with these other uh, barriers that have been placed in the U.S., something that I noticed too is that some um, people, Mexican, Mexicans with, with citizenship, with U.S. citizenship, have also been um, supporting other parents who don't have documents and want to have their children go back to, to, to their communities and connect with their grandparents and with the community there. They have been taking um, some children back to the community so that they can, uh, you know, build and strengthen this relation across these borders. Um, and that is for me an amazing way to show solidarity and to show support and um, and, and accountability and, and so many layers of, of, of respect because um, that is something that is practiced a lot in my community too. Mm-hmm. And, and I noticed that that is so crucial across different indigenous populations around the world. And I think that it is important for us to highlight and write about this, that although, as you mentioned, there are so many layers layers of colonization, not everything is, is over. Yeah, no, that's right. And, you know, there's so much there to kind of unpack. But one of the things that you, that you make me think about is just that, that key word of, of relations and how, how important that word is to thinking about how how to decolonize some of this conversation. Um, and one of my friends and, and, and colleagues, uh, Vince Diaz, who is um, a Pacific Islander scholar, he's Pompeian and Filipino, he recently moved to the University of Minnesota. And one of the things that he found in kind of thinking about these terms, settler and native, what he found is that once you ask the question of how you be a good relative, the conversation changes. Right? How how can you be a good relative? And that practice that you just described of re-territorializing citizenship so that you can literally be a good relative by taking 
the, the your neighbors or your cousins or your friend's child back to the community in Michoacan, that seems to be kind of an example, one, one of many examples of how we think about ourselves in, in relation to others, whether we're biologically connected or not. But, but reinforcing those relations seems to be part of what indigenous survival, survivance and thriving has, has been about and continues to be about, right? Right. Yes, definitely. So I'm wondering if you maybe just to add a little bit more, what other things do you think we can we can do to de- to help further decolonize the discussion about migration borders and an understanding the, the caution that, that Eve and Tuck have about decolonization not being a metaphor, but what how, how do you how do you think about these kinds of big issues and these big challenges that we have? Mm-hmm. I As I said before, I think that there is a lot of work that needs to be done even within our own communities, in my case, within my own immigrant community, because um, there are so many layers of colonization that that are ongoingly happening and have happened that um, that is the biggest challenge for me is one of the things that I'm planning to do um, is hopefully I will be able to do this is is to start writing books in yeah. that are bilingual, um, especially children's books to yeah. empower to empower other ways of like to, to not empower but also to represent yes. other ways of being and knowing and to sort of make, start making those connections. And um, so that is one way that comes to my mind is is to actually go back and 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 get back to the community in a way that is because something that I've been asking myself so much to to begin with I never even imagined that I was going to become a professor or yeah. much less to even go to the university and now that I have access to 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 so much to other knowledge mm-hmm. um, and, and to this consciousness that continues to be built, I'm just beginning to build and continues to be built. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, and also access to other scholars who are doing amazing work, yes. to you know the work of indigenous scholars, to the work of Chicano scholars, um, and, and um, also some other colleagues from the Philippines who are also thinking about similar questions and issues. Yeah. Um, I will. One thing that is that I I would like to do first is, is literally try to be be a bridge. Now mm-hmm. I understand what Ansadua was saying mm-hmm. when she say I want to be a bridge between the university and my community and yes. and among ourselves. I I want to be one little link to that bridge. Yeah. Um. And 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 see how I can then transcribe what I'm learning here into the ears and the hearts of my community too because I think that is so powerful when one embraces and, and gets into a point of, of consciousness to embrace who we are. Yeah. I think that is one way to liberate, of liberalization. Um, and it might sound like metaphorically, but I think that is so real as well. Yes. And yeah. it is one important step to take because one thing that I notice is so much internalized racism that is within my community too, yeah. and that is so painful. Yeah. That on the one hand, we try to de-Indianize ourselves. Yes. And to make fun of ourselves if we look indigenous. Yeah. And to negate that side, which is so violent, so violent within ourselves. 
But I, we need to, one thing that I think it is important to do is is that, is, is to get back in a way of to liberalize. So yeah. that's one side. And the other side is to be in conversations, to continue the conversation too in, in, in the academic world as well. And, and and elevate and these other ways of being annoying and to create and not create but actually highlight other centers of mm-hmm. universe that are happening. Mm-hmm. I know some people say that's that you know writing the way in which people of color do or I, I do as a feminist woman of color is writing from the from from the margins but I refuse that. Mm. Because I think that there are many centers, and yeah. I agree with with the scholars who write about uh, constellations of resistance. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's very. I I wanna grab into those ideas, and I wanna become part of 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 a larger movement in different spaces. I think that's really well put, and I think that you're right that we have to think about decolonizing our own communities in, in, in the many ways that that work has to happen. And at the same time, to use your, your wonderful uh, phrase, the, think about these constellations. How can we also be in relation with other people's and other people's struggles? You know, I'm, I'm speaking to you from here in Coast Salish territory over here in Washington. And one of the things that I think has been so important and such an important corrective to previous waves of, of Chicano, Chicana scholarship is that moving beyond this kind of past tense idea of indigeneity where it's all about Aztec nationalism and it reproduces the kind of Mexican nationalism that, that did that work of erasure we, we talked about a little bit ago. But to re- replace that with, with actual relationship, with actual ongoing projects of indigenous people in the places that we are and to think about how we can be here um, and be in relation with those struggles as well, to be a good relative, right? So uh, Mishana Goman from UCLA um, came up here not too long ago and she said something very striking. She said in one of her remarks that you choose to be a settler. You don't have to be, you can be an ally. You can try to be a good relative. You can try to do something different, um, in, in, but that, that's not an easy thing. And it's not something that's not a magic wand, but we can reframe, I think, the way we are in relation with the lands and the people of, of, of where we find ourselves. I love that idea. I really do. And I think that that will be a very good step into ignoring or trying to disempower these nationalistic borders. Um, yeah. Right. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. I really like the idea of being a good relative. Being yeah. A, being a good ally. But before we can be a good relative and ally, uh, we need to... to to uncover these 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 new opportunities to yes. become relatives and allies yeah. within our own communities that's right. and reach out to other communities too. Yeah, no, that's right. Also, just I, I love how you you know you kind of refuse this idea of, of, of marginalizing ourselves or kind of writing from the margins that this is these are these are centers and there there are many centers to think about it and and the, one of the wonderful things that indigenous uh, and American Indian studies has done is to show us how much how much that field has to teach all of us right about the way that that the world works these are not small stories these are these are big stories about about colonialism, about resource extraction, about 
you know, politics. These are these are big kind of notions, and they give us lots of ways of thinking about the world that we inhabit, and and not just human, but also non-human. Um, one of the wonderful ways, Nick Estes, in his recent book, he you know he he reminds us of one of the things colonialism does, which is it disrupts the relations between humans and our non-human relatives. Right, uh, the land, the the more than human kind of animals around us, uh, spirits. So, so really thinking about the way that indigenous studies has really kind of informed the way that that so many of us in you know in in in, in all in similar uh, pursuits can really rethink these questions from be it from area studies or feminist studies or geography or the main disciplines of political science where I did my work or or geography where you did work your yours. How generative the, the this field and scholarship is. Definitely, I agree. As I one, one of the fields or, or one section of geography that has really impacted me is also black geographies. Um, some scholars such as McKittrick um, uh, write about black geographies and the fact that um, within geography there are some that are more highlighted than others. And while it is crucial to paint the geography of, of oppression, and um, of, of the violence of the state, it is also crucial to paint the geography of, of other ways in which geography has and continues to be produced and experienced by marginalized communities, by, by oppressed communities themselves. Right. We are also producing and living other ways right. that it has been so erased. And, and, and um, from, from the geographies, literalmente, yeah. right? From right. geographies in history, which right. is so tied to each other. Right. So that has been a big influence to me. That is, she has a book called The Demonic Grounds. Um, it has been a huge influence into thinking about uh, what happened when you center these other ways of being annoying that right. have been so erased. Yeah. Um, it, they are both indigenous, they, they, they come from many different places and they are taking place as we speak. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And, you know, you just, you know, describe some of these communities as marginalized. And I think that's also right because even I think there are many communities that have been forced to be, you know, very, very much on the sidelines of, of, of societies by, by political economies and, and structural violence. Um, but one of the things I think that you're also kind of reminding us is that we don't need to participate in that process of marginalization. And one, one other scholar from the Pacific who uh, Oceania Studies has kind of introduced me to is a an amazing Tongan scholar named Apeli Hawafa, who has this book called uh, We Are the Ocean. And one of the things that he recounts is similar to what we were talking about, is the, the way that education makes you think of yourself um, uh, as less than other people, right? And at one point, Hawafa says that he realized how important it was not to participate in his own belittlement, right? How we should not, you know, we need to break those kind of patterns of thought so we can address the kind of political, economic, structural questions and, and racial questions that you're, that you're kind of foregrounding in your research. So mm -hmm. that's a very good point. Yeah. yeah, well, it is important to recognize yeah. that the state has made or, or those people in power has made it so that it's difficult for some people to to survive um it is important to to also recognize that then these you know other ways of being and knowing have been centered to the survival as well and it is it is both sad and and and, and empowering because 
it should not be this way. Right. There should not be this way in which people has to find ways to survive. Yeah. Right? And yes. so, That's right. but on the other hand, it's important to talk about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I'm coming down to the last couple of questions I have for you, but you've really already started to answer. The next question I have was, was just about how you think about the importance of your research agenda in the, in the current climate that we live in. And, you know, I think for many of us, it's, it's pretty obvious, you know, why your research is so important. But it, I would love to invite you to just say a little bit more about what the, what the urgency is, you think, for, for this work in this political moment that we're experiencing. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is. It is hugely important to think about these many ways in which some people's movement has been framed as as migrants, while other movement has been normalized. Yeah. Um, it is important so that we not humanize. I don't know that I really like this word because who are we to humanize? Yeah. It is all relations. They are already, we all humanize each other by the way in which we relate to each other, by the way in which we respect each other, by the way in which we produce meanings every day. Um, but it is crucial to to write and talk about um, the, the violence that the state is producing and who the state or this immigration that when we talk about the U.S., Yes. who the immigration law right now is targeting. Yes. Because it has targeted different populations across time. And, and of course, as we know, this targeting of certain populations is to benefit capitalism. It's part of the racial capitalism. Yeah. And so um, it is always important to talk about and to write about immigration. But as time goes on, it seems that these physical nationalistic border continues to be more and more strengthened. Mm -hmm. And I wonder to what is the role of, of the increased consumption of natural resources or what we call natural resources as if we are not. But the increased consumption of res finite resources that are then producing so many unnatural and what is being framed as nat natural, quote unquote, mm -hmm. catastrophes around the world. Mm -hmm. And so, um, it is crucial to uncover what are the processes that are making people not be able to stay in their home yes. and what is the processes that are stopping these very people that we or the people that we in the, this cold global north are contributing to their displacement right. and then we are stopping their very movements. Right. So um, thinking and writing about these processes, but at the same time, knowing and highlighting that there are other ways of surviving, other ways of relating with, with um, as you mentioned, of relating with our neighbor, or, or how to be a good relative, not only with other people, but also with every, everything that is that, that is around us, with mm -hmm. the universe, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, I, I think that Yes, writing about these issues and linking, making uh, connections across the, the different struggles that are happening right now. I was seeing, I was just listening to the news and reading the news about, you know, the, the, the movement in Chile. Yeah. Um, because of the increase in structural adjustment policies yes. and the increased social and political inequality within Chile and across 
you know, different spaces and, and nations. Yes. And also a uh, similar thing happened in Ecuador with, you know, more structural adjustment policies where the government was taking uh, the subsidies for, for uh, gas. Yeah. And that, I know by a fact that when gas goes up, everything else goes up. Right. And if the instability continues to increase where people don't have a way to to earn enough, you know, money to just make basic needs meet basic needs, then, you know, we're in deep trouble. Yes. And at the same time, as, you know, a lot of people has written about how while the borders are being open for the economy and to the extraction of resources, the borders continue to be um, augmented for the very people that we are displacing. Yes. No, that's right. That's right. And I think that that's one of the central contradictions of our times, right? That uh, capital and corporations move very freely across borders, exacting tremendous violence. But it's the poor who are criminalized and, and illegalized uh, and, mm-hmm. and forced in, into these really terrible structural uh, choices and conditions. So it's very, I mean, it is very dark, but... You know, I, I, one of the things that I think is important about your work, especially, is that you don't, you know, you're, you're, you're not content to kind of just, just wallow in the kind of darkness of, of our present condition. But you really are. I, I, I feel a, a real hopefulness to the, the, um, the kind of promise of, of so, social movements and progressive scholarship that can, that can inspire us uh, and, and, and point us in more creative directions. Can you, can you maybe just say a little bit more of that? How do you see some of the kind of more hopeful and creative kind of possibilities for us at this moment? Yeah, um, so as I say, sharing and, and writing and thinking and, and, and preaching in a way, yeah. uh, what we are seeing in our communities, the, the, the amazing ways in which people relate with each other, but also something that I have noticed and I have participated in and is very fulfilling. Uh, when I began going to, for instance, to the AGs, the American Association of of geographers to this conference um, there was not really at the beginning and that is about what is it seven years ago um, I felt lost within a deep seed of so many scholars amazing scholars and people but there wasn't really a space where I could see my work represented or where I could like um, uh, make connections with my work I remember at one time I went to this uh, talk about borders and I was very excited to be there. And when I, I first of all, there were not a mention of race. Wow. And everyone mainly wow. were white. And right. yes, as Laura Pulido has written about geography being so white. But something amazing just happened a few years ago. Uh, some of my colleagues, including um, Madeline Kawas and, uh, and Christina um, Xavier Serna, among others, came with the idea of creating a Latinx geography mm-hmm. group uh, for the conference. And we and they were inspired by the Black geographies who had just been created a few years before then. And so we created the Latinx geography following the model and, and being inspired by the Black geographies. Mm-hmm. And now we have these two amazing um, groups that have been created within this 
um, big conference, so we have a space where the very few of us can come together. And when we all come together, it doesn't feel as a, too small anymore. Right. You know, so we are expanding and building our own space mm -hmm. within this place. So in a way, we are building our own geographies within within this big conference. And I am very excited because uh, Madeline Kawas proposed that we actually create a panel and a discussion where black geographies and Latinx geographies can come together, but also where indigenous geographies can come together. Because as I mentioned before, um, Maggie Ramirez and, and, um, and Michelle Deglo were, were already working on, on creating charlas or um, sessions on decolonizing geographies. So um, we want to bring us all together and to start building these connections as scholars who are trying to find and create space and meaning within these big conferences, within the, geo the, the field of, of geography that is so wide still. Yes. So that is one uh, very, uh, one way in which I can see that, that there is so much hope that is happening. Yeah. And another one, I was invited to, for the very first, about two years ago, the very first transnational um, uh, conference, and they didn't call it conference, they call it Asamblea of Indigenous Peoples in Oaxaca. Mm. And so a lot of people came from different places, but especially the community within Oaxaca, and we follow their protocols. And the plan is to build communities across borders and precisely to center, to center indigenous ways of being and knowing and relating and respect and so much more into these conferences or, or assembleas um, and being in conversation and, and creating alliances and yes. becoming a good relative as you yes. mentioned before. Yeah. No, I, those are those are really wonderful and and inspiring examples and just to add a little bit more to that i think that the creation of, of new spaces within what you describe in geography i think is happening in in lots of ways to the north american academy maybe even you know the the, the global academy more generally with with organizations like the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association, NISA, which is a space where indigenous knowledge is is the point of departure, where no one, you know, no one has to explain why this is important. No one has to explain why indigenous ways of knowing are relevant, right? That this is and there's a critical mass of indigenous and native scholars who are who are taking the lead and showing the importance of this, not from the margins, as you say, but from the center. And I think that kind of move provides us um, just another example on top of the ones you've given us about another way of thinking about the future of, of knowledge production, right? That it doesn't have to be like the, the kind of knowledge production that we first encountered when we first came into the university, that it can be relational, it can be community-facing, it can be uh, revolutionary and transformative. And I think those are things that, I, that, that, that give us all a little bit of hope for what the university can contribute to a better world. Correct. Well, Yolanda, you've given us so much to think about, and I want to thank you for, for being so generous. And I also have to say that I think one of the other things that makes me hopeful about the university is having emerging scholars like you who are who are a part of it. And you know, in, when departments make good decisions like hiring you, I think it shows that we have, uh, <laughs> you know, that we the university is, is moving in the right direction. 
Thank you, Tony. It was a pleasure having a conversation with you. Thank you for also, again, for being in conversation with me and for sharing so much as well. Oh, it was a real pleasure. And uh, I have the feeling this will be uh, the first of many conversations. I agree. Okay, cuídate. Muchas gracias. Gracias también. Hasta luego. Hasta luego.